I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum! Astral Radio Z is a horror, cult, exploitation film podcast by filmmakers, critics, musicians, journalists, and fans for the film obsessed. Here is your host, Derek Terry. On this episode, Derek brings on Chicago-based horror filmmaker Tony Wash. This will be the first of a couple episodes where we chat with Tony about his life, horror fandom, and the trials and tribulations of a director attempting to break through. If you aren't familiar with his work, he has directed a choose-your-own-adventure film titled It Is My Party and I'll Die If I Want To, The Nazi Zombie Short A Chance In Hell, and the upcoming films High On The Hog and The Rake. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get around to everything we wanted to talk about, as we always tend to go off track, being fans of the genre, so make sure you keep your eyes and ears peeled for an upcoming episode where we continue this discussion. Now, on to the show. Man, you caught me in the middle of something really special. Diarrhea? Oh, well, no, not that special. Are you a video gamer at all? I play Call of Duty, Zombies, and that is it. And and in the eight hours a week that I probably play compared to the 150 to 200 that some people play, <laughs> I've managed to somehow fry my PS4 twice in the last two months. Are you serious? I didn't know that was possible. I didn't think it was possible either. I thought maybe I just have shitty luck, but apparently I just don't, I, I don't know. I got a bad surge protector or some shit. I don't know. Oh, wow. And that sounds like my old Xbox 360. It fried out twice. And then I said, fuck this. I got a PS3. See, and I wish I could say fuck this, but I really like playing Call of Duty Zombies. So <laughs> hopefully it doesn't break again. I'm talking to the dudes at the PlayStation Network, and I'm like, you know, this happened. This just happened two months ago in October. Like, where's my get? Like, can I get a new system or something? Will you just give me a rebate, and I'll go and buy one of the smaller models, and you can have my old system, and that's that. And the guy's like, well, you know, we don't really do that. Okay, well, then what's the guarantee that this is going to happen a third time after my warranty runs out? Well, hopefully it won't. That's your guarantee? It's yeah. It doesn't happen? Yeah, it's hope. We hope it doesn't happen. There wasn't there, isn't there like a 90 day warranty or some sort of like one year warranty on those consoles at all? Or do they not do that shit anymore? No, yeah. You get a one year warranty and I bought it in July. So I, I, I'm covered under my one year warranty. And then you also get a 90 day warranty on, on the repair. So even if I wouldn't have been covered by my year warranty. I still would have been covered by the, the repair warranty from October. But the problem here is, again, if this has happened now twice within the five months I've owned this and twice within the last two months, and I looked at the serial number, it's not even the same console. It's two different consoles that this has happened to me now. So either the disc, which I sent the disc in with it, either the disc is fucked somehow or again, my surge protectors fucked, which I just switched it out with a different one. But it's like, again, for you to say, hopefully it doesn't happen. It's like, I spent $400 on this thing. <laughs> no shit. The last thing I was do, I'm gonna do is sit here and fucking hope and, and, and pray that this isn't gonna break again. That's not a customer service. Uh, they don't care. They got you by the short and curlies, man. Sony, are you kidding me? I've never heard of like one of the Sony consoles going bad like that. You must be in the the really fine minority. I'm just really unlucky. <laughs> well, not to not to make you cry even more. Mm. Uh, my brother Shane, who works for Sony, he's a graphical designer and uh, Sam Fran for them, uh, for the pay- PlayStation Network store. He gets a hold of me a couple days ago and he goes, hey, 
you have you want a PC now? And I said, oh, yeah, I I switched over to a PC about six months ago because I stupidly, very stupidly decided to update the OS on my MacBook Pro and it bricked it. Oh, yeah. So I had to go and buy a, a, a PC laptop because I don't I don't keep a tower at my house at all because I mean I travel around with my editing setup and you know I work remotely and whatnot and where I work professionally I don't have to have I mean they have computers that far outweigh anything that I could possibly ever buy so <laughs> for the most part I just have a nice little easy setup at home and I'm like oh yeah. I have a PC. He goes, okay, well, I'm going to be sending you the beta uh, version of the Friday the 13th video game. Oh, yeah. So right now, as I was waiting for you to get on, I was downloading Friday the 13th, the video game, and my gaming boner is at an all-time stiffness, Tony Wash. (laughs) You are flying flags real high right now. Holy shit, dude. Have you seen anything about this thing? My my friend Brandon, who's done some of my effects work, apparently did some design work for the game or something. And so he was playing a beta version of it uh, and was on Facebook Live the other day with it. Okay, sure. <laughs> and it it looks pretty uh, it looks pretty badass. He was running around as Jason from Friday too. So he had the the, the potato sack on his. Head. Oh fuck! Yeah, yeah. Yep, he had a pickaxe, and he was definitely seeking out the counselors. Dude, I can't wait to be Jason from New Blood, running around, fucking just destroying fools. I can't wait. This has been like a lifelong dream about to come true, Mr. Wash. Unbelievable. And that's what blows my mind about franchises like that. Like, I I still, if I was the head of of the Friday the 13th franchise... I would have created one of those movies every year for the last 35 years. There would be Friday the 13th part 37 coming out next year. They did do that for eight years. Well, on and off for eight years until Paramount decided, you know what? Because they were embarrassed of that series the entire time they were making it. And so they decided to push it off on New Line and New Line had no fucking clue what to do with that. They shit the bed that the early 90s, man. Yeah, they did. Most horror films in the early 90s were shitting the bed. All of them, dude. Other than From Dust Till Dawn and Candyman, Dimension knew what was up. I I do. I I like both of those. And and really, um, I didn't mind Scream when it came out, but now I just think it's stupid. Uh, Don't tell Andrew and Kevin I said that. (laughs) Um, I I love The Relic. The Relic is one of my favorite 90s horror. That is a very unsung flick. Another one I think that's really unsung, too, is Mimic. Oh, Mimic's great. But, I but, even like, did you see JT Petty's third one? Uh, I have seen two and three. I don't remember which, like, which is which. Which is the one where they're in the school and it's the friend, the one who's boy, she always takes some pictures of herself when somebody breaks up with her. That is part two because part three is kind of like rear window. Okay, yeah, and I've seen part three also then, yeah. Yeah, I liked too. I mean, again, it's it's a cool series, and that's Gilmero del Toro. How do you, again, that dude really hasn't made a bad movie, you know? Yeah, I mean, regardless of my taste of some of his latter flicks, I, I think he he tries to put something out there that most people don't. I mean, there's such care to the design of his films and the character design and the world building he does. There's really nobody else out there that is doing that kind of stuff now. Well, and the thing that's funny about it is that somebody like him exists in today's filmmaking world and is doing what Ridley Scott and James Cameron were doing 30 years ago. Right. So my question is, why is it that those guys choose not to? And I can understand maybe James Cameron is beyond filmmaking at this point. He probably thinks he's a god on Earth. But like Ridley Scott, the last handful of movies he's made are, are horrible. And, and I, I'd be willing to say it's arguable that it's on account of, of him just getting paid a bunch of money to, to put his name on the movie essentially mm-hmm. and phone the directing in. But like, why not go back and, and recreate something like the Blade Runner movies or, you know, the original alien, like why go and do something like that again, if you have the ability to. Well, I, from what I understand, um, he's the one behind covenant or correct. 
uh, the the new thing with Tom Hardy. Yeah, the new Alien movie. I heard. Oh, didn't he direct it? I don't know if he directed it, but he's associated with it. I don't believe he directed it. Um, I've heard nothing but amazing things about the pre-screening they had of that. Oh, really? They had a pre-screening of it? It must have. I don't know if it was a, a full pre-screening or if it was like 15 to 20 minutes of the new film. And from what I had heard from that was that it was a hard R gore um, kind of like it was reminiscent more of aliens than anything. I'll, I mean, I'll take that. I'll take it and I'll chew it as much as humanly possible. <laughs> no shit. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say dirtier things, but I don't know if my mother would listen to this or something. Although it sounds like I have a cold. I just had like a sneezing fit before I got on with you. And so like my voice is all fucking crackly and shit. And I'm not sick, but I sound like a smoke to have a pack of cigarettes today. So, Oh, Otherwise, oh, normally be much sexier. Oh, it sounds fine. I can never tell what things are going to sound like now. For some reason, on my end, the last few episodes we've done on here, because Google's changing the algorithm of how they record these to YouTube, my my end sounds weird. But then when I get the audio from YouTube, it sounds perfect. It sounds fine. Hmm. So I have no idea what they're doing now. So speaking of podcasts. Whatever happened to it came from uh, the underground? You know, I it's one of those things that was just really disappointing. Like we we were going on it and, and doing a pretty good job with it. And then one of the guys or, or it was either we were doing them, I think, on Monday nights. And then, like, I started bartending on Monday nights. And um, <clears throat> so we tried to kind of switch it around and do it on like a Sunday or something. And yeah. And I think that it, it kind of got to be a little difficult for everybody to, to find the time to do it. And, you know, Brian and Ian were the ones who were really doing all of the the recording and the editing and the uploading of it. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to belittle them by saying this, I hope, you know, no offense to those guys if they have to listen to this, but editing a podcast is nothing like editing a movie or like, you know, <laughs> the you know it's probably like what what i'm doing with with the upkeep for world of death to a small degree and and so i was really disappointed because my hope had been that that we would find a way to make it work because at one point we even said you know we missed this let's try and do it again and then it just never happened and and i'm really disappointed because i had a lot of fun obviously you know me i like to talk and um and that was a really good outlet for it and I thought like we were getting, you know, some decent responses from our, our fan base and, and then it just ended and, you know, they, they didn't want to continue. So at this point, um, my friend, Ben Lewandowski, who you might've met at the convention a couple of weeks ago, he's the guy mm-hmm. who looks like Jesus. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So he and I have been talking about doing one. Um, so I was actually going to probably hit you up at some point in the near future and say, Hey, so, how do you record yours and what do you do? You know? <laughs> I have the most unsophisticated setup for mine. <laughs> well, I don't be any better at this point. I, I'm thinking about going video just because a lot of people, you know, don't do the video podcasts. And Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I don't know who the fuck would want to sit and stare at Ben and I for a couple hours. So, who knows? Well, that's one reason why I don't do a video podcast. The other reason is... Editing an audio podcast, a podcast, as you just said, is far easier. <laughs> it's far, it's less work, less time, and it's not as cruel. Uh, I don't have to sit and worry about doing color correction, then doing an audio work, then uh, getting it out there and having a YouTube compress it in weird ways and having to upload it 15 million times to make sure it's right. And screw that. No, I'm just going to do an audio podcast and <laughs> call it a day. See, and, and I don't I don't disagree with that mentality, but I've really been starting to try and convince myself that majority of the people in this world are fucking stupid. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. And, and so they don't care. Like like I had a guy, one of, one of the guys I work with sent me a video earlier today of a fat dude shitting all over a bathroom at Golden Corral. And it's I mean, he was fake shitting. <laughs> 
But he was like, oh, I have no more room. I need to make room. So he goes into the, into the bathroom, sits down in the toilet with a plate of food in his hands and shits all over the stall. And it's got like 19,000 views. And it's of like, course. I can't get, I can't get a thousand views on a world of death episode, which is being promoted through the world's largest horror website. And yet this stupid fucking video of this fat ass shitting all over the walls in a fucking golden corral bathroom gets 19,000 views. And that's probably just today, you know? And so at the, the point I'm trying to make is, is I don't think that, that the quality of something like a podcast needs to necessarily, you know, really matter all that much. You don't need to color correct it or anything because whoever's watching, it's not going to be like, oh, well, you know, this is way too desaturated. <laughs> well, but I will. <laughs> That's my problem with a lot of things is that I I'm overtly a perfectionist and I sit and toil over everything. Same with this podcast. You know, I, I for a long time this year, I did a weekly podcast, still did the same thing that I did the four other years that I did it where I edit it meticulously, toss in a bunch of sound clips and music and all this other stuff and then um, decide to do it on a weekly basis and it started really burning me out <laughs> and yeah. when things aren't fun anymore that's when i i go away and i i went away for a little while and came back and it's i don't know what i would do if i didn't have this because i'm always doing something same with you i'm sure if i didn't have some sort of creative outlet even if it's just me shooting the shit with my buds like we are right now about films or whatever if I didn't have this man, roll me over in a grave and just put some dirt on me. I'm done. Well, and that's really been kind of my conflict of recent. You know, it's when you guys saw me at the convention. I, I know I spoke briefly with uh, Amanda about it. You know, it's it's like I've I've been very conflicted lately because it's like with everything that's been going on, it's like I, I have that that part of me that's like just stop. Like, why do you keep putting yourself through this bullshit time and time again? Because you're just going to keep getting stepped on. And, <clears throat> and I'm like, why not just stop and, and just move on, make your life simpler, you know? And, and then I'm like, what the fuck would I do with my life? I have nothing else to do. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly imagine coming home from work every day or every night and playing a video game or watching Netflix and binge watching TV shows. Like that's just not me. So that's why I'm not giving up, you know, and obviously because it is my dream and I love it. And I want to prove everybody wrong who thinks in their head, Oh, well, you know, it's really cool that he's doing that, but it'll never amount to anything. One day he'll grow up. Oh, like, fuck that. Fuck you. Fuck that. And fuck the horse you rode in on, you know, it's just, right. It's just tough, though. I understand where you're you're getting at, man. It, it gets really hard, and you get down on yourself, and, and it's hard to pull yourself back up because it doesn't get any easier as you get older, you know? Oh, that's absolutely great. Have you always been somebody that's needed a creative outlet? I mean, from an early age, was this something that you was, were compelled to do, or did you just want to kind of goof off and make stuff? Um, no, I, I've always been an artist. When I was a kid, I did a lot of drawing um, I think the first script I ever wrote, I was like, shit, I couldn't have been more than 10 or 11. I wrote a Kung Fu movie that we were going to shoot in my backyard. And, you know, it's like, I look back on it and I'm like, man, if I would have made that movie, like it probably would have been as terrible as it would have been for an 11 year old's directorial debut. It probably would have been pretty cool because some of the shots and the way I was going to shoot it, um, I think would have been really uh, dynamic for an 11 year old again, you know? <laughs> um, and it, and it was all just using old school trickery and stuff, but sure. uh, between that, even when I was like, when I was in boy Scouts, when I was younger, I, I used to do a lot of wood carving and, uh, you know, I kind of translated obviously into the special effects and stuff, even though I, I don't really do that all that much anymore. Cause I just don't think I'm, I don't think I'm as good as I could be. Um, cause I don't put enough time into it and I know a lot of people who are better at it and who enjoy it more than I do, but yeah, I've, I've pretty much always been someone who's looked for some form of creative outlet for my energy. Was it always movies though? No, definitely not. Like I said, when I was younger, when I was a kid, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, drawing. I did a lot of sketching. Uh, as a kid, I, I was, I'm really good at like taking a, a picture and copying it. I can't draw from my mind. So like, if you were like, Hey, Tony, why don't you storyboard your movies? I could never do that. Cause they would look fucking atrocious, but like 
I could, I used to take like my Punisher comics and stuff and I would just recreate them because uh, I could pretty much copy them. The proportions would be a little off, you know, Castle would have like a fucking Robert Zadar jaw, but other than that, you know, they <laughs> pretty, pretty spot on. Um, and, and then I did, I, I wrote a lot of stories and stuff when I was a kid too, but uh other than that, no, it's, I didn't really start getting into movies until I was more in high school. I, I worked at a video store my sophomore year of high school and uh, through the rest of high school. And um, it's like I'd always enjoyed film and I'd always enjoyed the horror genre in particular with, you know, books and movies and stuff. And then when I got into the video store, I was working with this guy, I was like 15 at the time. And there was this guy who was probably like 24 and he's like, Oh, you like scary movies? Well, here, have you seen this? And have you seen this and this? And he just introduced me to all the films that horror fans know about, but a 15 year old kid who, you know, who doesn't know jack shit about the genre, even though I can say, Oh yeah, I love Friday the 13th and I love the Halloween movies. And I've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre three times. It's like, well, have you ever seen Prince of Darkness? No, I haven't. What's that? Oh, well, if you like Halloween, here's John Carpenter's, you know, Prince of Darkness. And here's The Fog, which I'd never seen. And, um, you know, he, he really introduced me to a lot of films that uh, that I had never even heard of or um, ones that I'd seen the, the, the box on the shelf of the store all the time and always wanted it, but then never rented. And he's like, oh, that one's a piece of shit. Or, yeah, you definitely got to watch that one. And and that's when it really started kind of taking control of, of my artistic desires. And, uh, and it's just kind of grown from there. Yeah. What was the one movie would you say during that time, uh, that really got you going? Oh man. Um, that's tough because it's like you, you can look at it from the perspective of a 15 year old, and say, obviously, it was the popular movies. You know, like I said, I liked Scream a lot and because I was 14 when that came out. And, and The Relic, I was 15 when that came out. And so those movies were really influential to me because I saw those in the theater. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I saw Candyman and Alien 3 in the theater. Those were the first R-rated horror films that I remember seeing in the theater with my dad and being like, holy shit. Like, because I was like 12 when those came out. So. Yeah. You know, to go see Candyman at the age of 12 is is probably not the best parenting. That's a hard movie, man. That's a hard R. Yes. Yes, it was. And and I loved every second of it. You know, I mean, it had tits and blood and guts and Tony Todd being Tony Todd. And, right. You know, and it showed the, the grittiness of Chicago. And it's it's one of the one of the few Clive Barker movies that I love that I absolutely love. Um, cause his movies typically are really weird for me. Um, but I just, I love Candyman so much and, uh, and it really, again, it really shaped, I think who I am as a storyteller. So probably those, um, there was the ones that I had as a kid that I grew up, you know, aliens, obviously I watched a thousand times by the time I was 10. Um, you know, the star Wars movies obviously influenced me a lot. So I'm excited. I'm going to see rogue one tonight. Oh, dude, you're going to love it. We went and saw it the other night, and it's fucking phenomenal. Yeah, it's what everybody says. So we're we're heading out at uh, 10. So I got about 40, a little over 40 minutes to talk. Um, cool. Well, we'll make, we'll make it count, Mr. Tony Wash. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so... So speaking of uh, of Candyman and it's uh, where it's set at now, I also having grown up um, on the outskirts of Chicago, I grew up in uh, Plainfield, I was born in uh, Joliet. I also kind of was attracted to the fact that here we're finally seeing Chicago for what a lot of Chicago is, um, which is something that really isn't typically shown. Most people think of like you know christmas vacation and crap like this that wasn't even filmed there (laughs) for christ's sake um you are you are and have been for a long is it has it been most of your life that you've been a a chicagoite or lived in the chicagoland area i mean chicagoland area yeah i've never actually lived in the city i've always been in the suburbs um I, when I went to college, obviously I lived at college, but, uh, which was a small school in, in Illinois. And then when I went to Savini's effect school, that's in Pittsburgh suburbs. And I lived there for two years. Um, but, uh, otherwise, yeah, I've lived in the Chicago suburbs my whole life and, um, yeah. 
I guess it's the city as as shitty as it is sometimes here, as cold as it is. It's Ugh. you know, it is what we call home. Did you what made you go to uh Savini school instead of trying to make your own films? Was it just uh you felt that was more practical thing to do, or what was the reasoning behind that? Well, that's kind of funny because like I it's funny you say that I had a fraternity brother who was always in the big into horror films too. Uh, his name is Matt Tut and him and I used to go to family video on like Saturday afternoons and just rent the shittiest horror films, like the video dead and the stupid horror movies, you know, and we would just sit and spend the afternoon watching these crappy horror films hung over. And, you know, before we go out and party that night and, um, <clears throat> he, he, he was always one of those guys who was like, you know, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. And like I, he was, he helped me with a project that I shot when I was a senior or a junior in college. And, um, you know, so we, we always kind of were, were messing around with making movies and stuff together and talking about it. And it was, I was 23, I want to say at the time. And I was working for this, uh, architectural firm. I was like a manager for this company doing the nine to five. And, um, and I just, I really didn't like it. My manager was a fucking asshole and <clears throat> it just wasn't me. I knew it wasn't me. And one day I'm sitting in my company van, my minivan and, uh, eating some lunch. And my friend calls me, he's like, Hey man, you know, I've been thinking about it and let's go to Savini's effects school. And, and I heard about it because I, at the time, you know, I was getting a, a subscription to Fangoria magazine. Oh, yeah. All over the back pages, all over. There were even video brochures that Fangoria would put out of, uh, what was that, the uh, Savini's horror, uh, World of Horror or something like that that he had a VHS tape of? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, he had the Masters. He was the Master of Illusions book. Books. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I don't know if the the tape was the same thing or not. Or Grand Illusions, Grand Illusions was the name of it of the of the books. I don't know what the movie was called, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, they were advertising the school at that point. This is two thousand three, so at that point, it was kind of like, uh, um, you know, it was maybe a couple three or four years had it had been going on. And, uh, and so it was starting to gain in popularity and the class sizes were getting bigger and stuff. And so they were starting to promote it more. And, and my friend was just like, dude, you know, I, I really want to do this. This looks really cool. Let's, let's look into it. And so I started thinking about, I'm like, all right, let's do this. And, you know, as well as things where I was like at that point in my life where I was dating a girl really seriously and I had this full-time job and I was like, well, you know, I mean, I could go down this path and this could be the rest of my life. And, you know, as content as I was in some respects with that, not the job, but more the girl, you know, it's like the other half of me is like, Tony, you've been telling people your entire um, coherent life that you're going to be a film director and you're not even going to try and do it. Like, that's just sad. And so um, I started researching the school. And I, I ended up getting to the point where I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And I talked to my friend, Matt, and Matt was like, well, no, man, I'm sorry. I can't do it anymore. I yada, yada, yada. And <clears throat> he has since taken over his father's printing company, which is cool. Um, mm. and has a wife and a kid. So he's doing his thing and I'm sure he's loving life, but it was that phone call that I got from him that just caused me to, for some weird ass reason, just say, well, fuck it. I'll look into it and see what, what I think. And, uh, and that caused me to go there. So I did. What did you think of it? Uh, I'm glad I did that instead of film school. That's for sure. Although if I would have gone to film school, I would understand the technical aspects of filmmaking a little bit better. Um, it definitely would have helped. It's my party more, but at the same time, it's my party wouldn't exist if I would have gone to a film school and right. that school. Um, you know, Savini's school made me the filmmaker that I am because I was the only person there who was like, I want to make movies, not necessarily do effects. This is just a different foot in the door as opposed to everyone else going to film school and saying, I'm a director. Well, so is everybody else in my class, you know? Right, right, right. Um, and so what I liked about it is it gave me the opportunity to understand the a very important department in a horror film. 
um, with special effects. You know, a lot of directors don't know a goddamn thing about special effects. So you'll tell the first AD, I need six hours to do this makeup. And they'll be like, oh, well, you have two. And it's like, no, fuck off. Right, right. You're giving me six. And if I can get it done in five, I'll get it done in five. You know, otherwise it's going to look like shit. And the money you spent is wasted. And our work is going to look like shit. And we don't want that reputation. So, you know, but that that is kind of the problem. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that I had a good grasp on that. Plus, I always enjoyed the art end of it. Um, but, you know, and it's obviously my genre of choice. So that was a really big thing. But ultimately, Savini's school is what I tell everybody, because a lot of people are like, oh, I'm thinking about going there. What's it like? You get out of it what you put into it, yeah. as with anything. Right. Um, you're not going to go there and become the best sculptor you know, in the world, you're not going to go there and automatically get a job working on alien covenant. You know, you, you really have to do your best to make good use of the time and good use of the fact that you're paying for these supplies and this time there. So you might as well utilize it. Um, and, and network as much as possible because you never know what these people are going to be doing. You know, I've got one of the guys I went to school with was, uh, he was nominated for an Emmy for American horror story. And, um, you know, he's kind of the, the poster child um, of the school uh, to a large degree. And he was in my class and um, for, actually from the Chicagoland area, too. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, I got a couple of my friends who are down in New Mexico and they worked, you know, they did the effects for like the Banshee chapter, which is a great movie. They worked, yeah. on, you know, Lone Ranger and and now they're working on the From Dust Till Dawn series. You know, they work for K&B. And I got tons of friends out in Hollywood who are working on shit too. And so you never know who's going to go where or who you know, might still want to help you. And, and a lot of these guys, as much as they're working on these bigger films, making union wages, they still say, Hey, Tony, you know, I had a, a 10 year reunion back in October. We all went out to Pittsburgh and there was about 20 of us who got together. And I was very surprised that a handful of them, we're like, oh, well, you know, next thing you do, let me know. I want to help. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, well, shit, I'm the least successful one in this group because all these guys are making 500 bucks a day, you know, fucking putting makeup on, on you know, Bradley Cooper and shit. Right. And I'm sitting here fucking with my thumb on my ass, hoping that I'm going to get enough money to make a fucking $60,000 feature or some shit like that. And it's like, you know, hoping that somebody's not going to fuck me over on my next film. And, you know, so... But it's, it's just kind of cool, and, and I, maybe that's because I'm one of the only people who left the school and was a filmmaker. Maybe that's because they like me as a person. I don't know. It's just great that I went that route instead of film school because it, it has given me the opportunities that I've had. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think that's a thing that uh, a lot of like young amateur filmmakers that are looking to start out need to realize that it isn't just a matter of – you know, picking up a camera and getting out there and doing it, which I think is a big aspect of if you want to be a filmmaker or want to be an editor or you want to be a producer, you have to do it. You have to continue to do it and keep your chops up. But a lot of it is thinking practically and also networking, 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 and taking chances. Don't just say this was a thing that I noticed because I've been a freelancer for over 10 years and um, a big thing I've noticed through working is if you don't take those chances and you don't just show up and talk to people and actually do your job, nothing is ever going to happen to you. If you're not willing to put your neck out there and do things that aren't necessarily in your quote unquote directive field, like say, if you're going to be a director, well, I'm not doing anything outside of directing. Or if you're going to be a producer, no, I'm not going to be a production assistant, or I'm not going to be a grip, or I'm not going to do. There are so many people out there that have that mentality that the rest of us that are just happy to work and are, are just wanting to soak up any knowledge that we have, we're the ones who move forward and actually have careers and have people like you say, you just said, you know, that want to be involved in your projects because they feel the enthusiasm of what you're putting forward and they know that you're for real. This business is so full of talkers and not walkers that 
I think it's it's really important if you're very serious about wanting to do this as a career, which may be the stupidest decision you ever make in your entire life. You you have to put both feet in the fire and commit to it and not just be uh, commit to I want to do this and this is all I'm going to do. But you also have to be a good person and a personable person. And you have to be able to sit and communicate with others. So after school, did you get a lot of FaceTime with, did you have like guest teachers that came in and helped out? Or did you get a foot in the door as an internship with different production companies? Or what was the big draw other than obviously that it was uh, Savini's school? I mean, what was the big draw to get you there? I mean, that that's really what the draw was to get me there. I mean, it's not like I visited the school ahead of time or anything to, um, I, I guess I did go out there to find my house and everything before I moved out there. But, um, otherwise it wasn't like I, I spent a bunch of time researching it or anything. I just, I kind of looked into it. I talked to some people on the phone and did some emailing and went out there to find my house and, and checked out the, the school campus. And, um, but at that point I'd already confirmed that I would be going. So, you know, it, it was really just the appeal of going to a special effects school. And obviously I was a fan of Savini's work, um, you know, because of, because of the movies that he'd worked on and everything, but obviously you, know, you get there and you realize it's not like he's teaching the classes. He nope. showed a couple of times a year to, to say hi and walk around and look at what people are doing and flirt with the girls. And, and <laughs> that's Tom. like, like I'm not, I'm not sitting here calling him out or anything because that's who he is, you know? Right. Right. And good for him. If, if you're his age and you're, and you're who he is and can do what he does. I only hope to have half the career that somebody like him has, you know, because then I would consider myself as just a success at this point, what you're saying earlier, it's like, I feel like all my ex-girlfriends are like, God damn, I dodged the bullet with that crazy ass motherfucker. <laughs> now it's like, Jesus, to think I could be married to a fucking filmmaker right now. Fuck that. Right. Right. Well, so I don't know, man. Like the, like I said, the school is what you, what you make of it. You know, I didn't put a ton of time into, into doing my schoolwork because by the third semester, there's four semesters altogether. It's a 16 month program. Yeah. Yeah. And, by my third semester, I was already writing It's My Party and I'll Die If I Want To. And I was in the mindset that I'm going to spend my life savings directing my first movie because that's what I came here to do. And so I I was still going to class and I was still getting, you know, I was getting A's and B's. But ultimately, my focus was on getting my film prepared so that I could start shooting, um, which I started shooting the beginning of my fourth semester. Um, and uh, so... But a lot of my other friends, they they did everything they could to learn as much as they could. Um, and, and like I said, the biggest thing was the networking. I, I made so many awesome friends there that I never would have met. And not only did that, is that benefiting me now? You know, a lot of them have worked on my, my more recent projects. Um, but with It's My Party in particular, it's like I was able to pretty much pick and choose people for their talents. You know, it's like I've got this guy who's a really good sculptor who's working with this guy who's a really good mold maker who's then working with these two guys who are really awesome at airbrush painting and you know and then i've got this girl who's doing the hair and makeup and, and so it just i was able to really pick from the best people and you know we were all going to school so it was like well shit let's just make a movie together because why showcase your work when you're trying to get a job in film you're taking pictures of your work instead of video of your work that makes exactly sense. so it ended up working out okay. I mean, I'm I'm very thankful that my friends and my actresses stuck with me because it's my party was a complete clusterfuck from day one. Um, and and I pat myself on the back. You know, I, I I get down on myself an awful lot. You can ask anybody who knows me well enough. And I I really look back on that and I'm really proud of myself because there are not very many moments in my life where I can say that I like sucked it up and said, you know what, just stop your bitching and moaning and, and just fucking do it. You know? Yeah. So it's like, uh, one of the world death filmmakers posted the, uh, the scene from Rocky Balboa where he's like Stallone's yelling at his son in the movie. And he's like, yeah. In the, in that alleyway. Yeah. He's like, you can't blame everybody for knocking you down. This world's tough and it's going to get you on your knees and you got to get up and keep on fighting. 
And I'm like, dude, Rocky, you said it, man. Dude, Sylvester Stallone knows his shit, you know? Absolutely one of my favorite freaking scenes in any movie I've ever seen. And it's the truth, especially if you're a filmmaker. I mean, it is tough to just complete a film. I don't think people understand what goes into making a feature film. So you you said that you had some problems with your first one with it's my party and I'll die if I want to. What what ended up happening that made it such a tough uh, a shoot for you? If you want to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. I I don't mind talking about party because party was fun. And, and, you know, I don't have to worry about pissing anybody off about it because if they're mad at me for talking shit about something, they can fuck off. <laughs> like, nowadays, you talk shit about a project, and you get sued. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Different ball game. But no, it's my party was just cool because it was like it was a group of people working together to make a movie because they wanted to make a movie. It wasn't people getting paid to make a movie. It wasn't people saying, Oh, well, I can make more money doing something else, or I have something better to do with my time. AK sit on a couch on my cell phone. I mean, at that time, cell phones barely had fucking text message capabilities. So it's like, we're, we're working on this movie. We're in a house with no heating, with barely any electricity, no plumbing, and we're making a movie because we want to make a movie. And and there were good days and there were bad days. And, you know, I look back on, on again, the fact that I spent my life savings making that film. And it, it just, it blows my mind that I didn't give up. Because as much as I enjoyed a lot of the moments on that film, we had so much fun. And so many times where I just remember just cracking up. It's like, you know, laughing for for minutes on end because of something stupid that happened during a take or or you know whatever like one of the girls trips or something and and it just we're all having such a blast but then there's the other 50 percent of the time you know the yin with the yang where you know i can't get people there because either they have class or they have a previous commitment and so now i'm trying to schedule around 15 people's schedules you know, between my effects guys and my um, my roommate, who was basically my sound guy and my assistant camera and my grip and, you know, and, and then all my actresses who were still going to school at a nearby university for acting, um, you know, and they were in like uh, stage productions. And so having to work around all that stuff, like there's a scene in the behind the scenes on the DVD um, where I'm basically talking to the actresses about, you know, like I'm frustrated because I don't know when we're going to shoot the stuff that we're trying to shoot because the one girl wanted to end the night early because she had finals the next day. And it's like two in the morning and we're shooting. And I'm like, I don't know when else we're going to shoot this shit. And we saw like another hour of shooting, you know, and it's just, it was just tough because you, you know, like I said, we're working against, factors that that already suck as in we're shooting in february and the house has no heating and the house has right. no plumbing and so, you're not paying these people so they have no real incentive other than your friendship to be there yeah and and the hope that the movie's going to go somewhere and do something and um and that's really all it was it was a bunch of naivety and ignorance it was all of us saying well you know this movie's gonna be the next evil dead so you know let's fucking let's just go crazy let's have a good time let's make a movie and you know, once I started, I just kept spending money because I had to, because I wasn't going to stop halfway through because then what the fuck did I waste half my life savings on? <laughs> Correct. Right. Um, but it, it wasn't easy. I mean, the, the guy, the house that we shot in was owned by a church, thank God. And this guy was supposedly renting to own the house. And he was going to school with us, but he never really went to class. He was one of those people who was like, oh, yeah, 40 grand to go to the school. Fuck it. I'll spend the money. And then just never went and like gave up. And so but, you know, he was at first he was like, oh, yeah, you can shoot a movie in my house. I don't give a shit. I'm barely here anyway, because he was just renting this old ass house and was going to fix it up and then never did. And and then it's just like, you know, one of those people who just doesn't stick to their word where it's like all of a sudden, oh, well, you know, you can't shoot here anymore. You got to pay me all this money in order to keep shooting here. I'm going to change the locks on you without telling you and, and all this shit. And it's, you know, you deal with stuff like that. Um, and, and, you know, you, you've produced an independent film before, so you you know what it's like not paying people and expecting people to do everything for you for a handshake and a hug. Yeah, very much so. I my My big thing was... 
how do I put this to not diminish anyone else's roles? Um, This all the skilled people. This is not to say everyone wasn't skilled, but what I'm talking about are like the crew members, um, like the the sound man, my DP, um, my uh, my gaffer. I mean, guys that are really going to be huffing and doing a lot of the legwork. I always made sure they were paid. Mm-hmm. Always, along with along with uh, my talent, I always tried, and it was all out of my own pocket. I mean, how what was the budget for "It's My Party"? Uh, it was like fifteen grand, but five of that I spent on the Canon XL2. Sure. Well, that's that's pretty typical. I mean, you figured you were probably going not only going to be making that movie, but probably subsequently a, a number of movies with it to make your money back. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and I mean, you know, I, I made the money back on It's My Party by selling it at conventions and stuff. And at the beginning, it was nice because, you know, we had a lot of the, the cast and the crew, you know, Adrian, the star of It's My Party, used to go to the conventions with us all the time. And and Chris Patrick, my uh, my old business partner and my friend, Steve who was one of the producers on it used to come up from Oklahoma all the time and, and, and do that too. And, and obviously everybody just gets older and gets responsibilities and and gets married and has kids and shit like that. Um, And so it's just, uh, you know, it, it it gets to that point where you, you realize you're not in your early twenties anymore, even your mid twenties at that point. And, and it's just not as easy. And, And that's what scares me the most is that, I'm, I'm at a point in my career where I don't really have a lot to show for myself, but I do. It's just that nobody's seen it yet because it's not out yet. And when it does come out, I don't really know how people are going to react to it. You know, whether I agree with it or don't agree with it, I don't know how people are going to react to it. So if, if these projects, if High and the Hog and the Rake don't do something good for me, if world of death doesn't continue to grow and if my anthology film that, that, you know, we've been working on for a few years now doesn't get completed and out there and and doesn't attract people, then it's like, at what point am I going to say I have to stop doing this? Because again, a lot of my friends, like you said earlier, these people go out and they, they work on these other projects and they're making money doing it full time. I don't have that opportunity. You know, I'm a director, I'm a producer typically projects that are created already have producers and directors attached. So right, right, right. I'm kind of the guy that's left behind. And I'm not saying that's trying, you know, have people feel sorry for me by any means. I'm just saying it because it's the reality of the situation. It's a cold, hard fact. Everybody wants to be a director. Everybody wants to be a director. Yes. But directors can't really lend their talent to, and their experience to another project, unless you come on as a creative producer or as a consultant. And correct. I don't have a successful enough project under my belt in a mainstream way for people to say, well, shit, we need to get Tony Wash's name on our movie. We want Scotchworthy Productions to produce our next film because that's going to give us clout, you know? Right, right. And so that's what really sucks about it is that I'm at a point where I'm looking at things and saying, well, you know, I've, I've used up all my get out of jail free cards, you know, all my, all my fucking friendship passes where it's like, Hey man, work on this for, for next to nothing for, you know, a month because, um, you know, or for more than that in some cases, because, you know, we want to make a movie together. And it's like all, all of my friends are, are, are busy working full time. Right. I can't expect them to, and nor do they care to work on these things because they have better shit going on. That pays better. And I don't blame them. Yeah, kind of leaves me in the dark because now I'm or not in the dark, but it leaves me in the dust because, you know, I want to like I want to try and produce another film sometime in the next year or two. And it's like, well, one, if neither of my features make any money uh, with High in the Hog and the Rake, then I really can't go to investors and say, oh, well, you know, put money into this movie because my last two didn't make any money. But this one probably will. And. And then I can't shoot a movie for next to nothing with a budget because nobody's willing to work on it for free unless I've right. entirely new cast and crew. Right. And have the the production value that your recent films have because they look gorgeous. You have names that are in them. I mean, there's a certain point where we as creators want to elevate our work. We don't want to keep making micro budget, no budget films. 
I mean, you want to you want to have things that you're proud of and that you want to get out there. Counteract what you're saying. Like, I I agree. I want to progress. I want to move forward. But at the same time, if if things are inhibiting me from being successful, I need to move past those things that are inhibiting me. If other people, if if other factors are preventing me from stepping to the next level, like, you know, I go from my quarter million dollar budgets to a half a million dollar budget or a million dollar budget. If I don't have the capability of making that, that, that uh, ascent on my next project, then I'm not going to just sit here and hope that that'll eventually happen. I'm going right. to try and find a way to make something else because what I believe I bring to the table, no matter what is an understanding of the horror genre, first and foremost, and um again the gratification and the um just the pleasantries that a lot of people don't bring to their sets um you know i I like to think that i feed my crew very well and i'm one of those people that like i'll i'll be sitting there sweeping up the floor with a pa because i think that's bullshit that oh well you're the director you don't have to do that well fuck you don't tell me what to do i'm the director i tell you what to do i'm going to help sweep with this guy because he shouldn't have to do this, you know? Right. Do it too. Unless I have something else I have to be doing instead. But the, the point I'm just trying to make is, is that's my dilemma right now is like, I, I want to do something else because I don't want the restrictions and the inhibitors that I've experienced in the last couple of years prevent me from continuing my career or from wasting too much more time. And, but yet the, the flip side is what happens if I go to the current cat of the current crew that I work with and they're not interested in being a part of the project because I don't have enough to pay them. And what happens if, you know, I go to my investor pool and none of them are willing to put money in because they've either already put money into a project of mine or the new ones are not comfortable enough because I haven't sold any of my other films yet. And, you know, it's just unfortunate. And the, and the, the really unfortunate thing about it is that I'm not in control of any of those factors. Right. You know, it, is that, well, and that's a matter of the level of the budget you're dealing with. So the movie kind of goes to the discretion of the producers and the money people at that point. Right. Um, well with high in the hog, it's, you know, my, my friend Kevin is the executive producer and he's, He's the one who put most of the money in and he's the one who um, uh, he put the money in and he wrote the script. So it's his movie. He hired me to direct it. And through creating the film together, it became my movie as well. But at the end of the day, I always tell him it's your decision. Final say, because, you know, and, and he, it's his final say because it's his movie, it's his money. And because he's the one who has to sell it and he needs to understand that. So not only does he have that privilege, but he also has that responsibility. Um, But the great thing about that situation is that Kevin respects my opinion. Kevin appreciates what I did for his movie. And because of that, when I tell him, Hey, this is my suggestion. This is my opinion. This is what I would like to see. He doesn't just dismiss it because he doesn't give a fuck. Right. He's the producer. He's the head honcho. He says, well, I trusted Tony before and we came out ahead. So maybe it's in my best interest to put my faith in him again. And um, I'm very fortunate for that uh, regard with him with High on the Hog because I I think it's a a really fun movie, you know. Um, well, let's take, but before we go too far down the rabbit hole that I know you and I will eventually go down, let's go ahead and let, let's take a step back. And why don't you uh, tell my listeners a little bit about uh, what you've been up to recently and all of these movies that uh, you've been working on for a number of years now that we've all in the, in the scene been clamoring to, to see because we've been hearing about them for so long. Um do you want to talk about kind of some of all these projects that are kind of caught in uh, what's the best way to put post-production hell? Yeah. Yeah. Post-production. Uh, um, what's the word? Uh, purgatory. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. Well, so, you know, in 2012, I directed and produced a, a movie called high in the hog. It's a grindhouse crime drama thriller, you know, all sorts of shit. It's mostly a grindhouse movie. Um, Starring Sid Haig, 
and uh, the late Robert Zadar. Uh, it's one of his last films, um, and Joe Estevez. And Sid plays a weed farmer. Um, he's had a family farm for five generations, and the government's trying to take it away from him. And so he decides in order to pay the bills, he's going to start growing marijuana. And he, uh, so, you know, he has this kind of group of people that he's kind of taken in, um, you know, um, women who have had uh, drug problems or abusive uh, relationships or family lives and, or runaways. And he kind of picks them up along the way and has kind of created this Charles Manson-like family dynamic on this farm, only minus the psychotic nature of Charles Manson. And, um, and so they all just live together. And honestly, if I could spend the rest of my life living in this movie, I would do it in a fucking heartbeat because <laughs> uh, it's, it's just so tranquil. And so at the core of the movie is about family and it's great because Sid is a producer on it. Um, it's the first film that he has actually had his name, um, above the, the opening title, uh, above the, the title of the movie. Um, and, and as a producer on it and, uh, he really believes a lot in it, which makes me happy. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's just a really cool project because it's not just this action grindhouse movie with a bunch of sleaze and tits and ass in it. And that you would typically associate with what Sid Haig has been a part of for a while yeah. now. And, and grindhouse for that matter. I mean, grindhouse right. or is sleaze and exploitation and, and nudity and sex and violence. And, and it has all that in it, but at the core, it's about family and it's about, you know, taking care of the people who take care of you. Um, and, and so I, I'm, I'm really proud of it. Uh, at this point, we're looking at finishing up post-production in the next two or three months. And, uh, we submitted the South by Southwest. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're just basically planning on no matter what, getting it out, you know, premiering it at least in 2017. Has Sid seen the movie at all? Sid has only seen the trailer. Um, cause what basically happened is we, we had the movie done. Um, a year and a half after we finished producing it, you know, it, it tends to take a good amount of time to, to do all the post, you know, on, on a film of, of this magnitude. And, um, you know, so we, we put all the aspects together and we were looking at it and showed a bunch of people and showed some sales agents and stuff. And the, the way we edited the movie originally was just very linear. And, uh, and it was more of a drama, you know, it was more of a family drama um, with elements of action and, and, as much as people were like, it's a good movie, it just wasn't appealing to the crowd of people, the demographic that we'd be going for. And so uh, we ultimately determined that it would be best to re-edit the entire film and try and make it more grindhouse. And so we did that. Um, my friend Ben Lewandowski, uh, who I was talking about um, earlier, uh, he and I re-edited the film. And, um, you know, him at the helm of, of, of editing is is a it's insanity in the purest sense of the word, but uh, he has some of the coolest and most unique ideas that any editor out there has. And he's doing stuff that, that, you know, he was doing things years ago that's happening now in television and movies, um, which is unfortunate because, you know, it's like we're ahead of the, uh, of the gun in a lot of cases, but because the movies aren't out yet, we're going to come out and people are going to be like, Oh, well, that's just like this. And so we'll fuck off. We made this before that was done. And, you know, um, same thing happened with it's my party where I did the choose your own adventure and then final destination three came out and everybody's like, Oh, it's like final destination three. I'm like, no, fuck off. I made my movie first. <laughs> no? what, what are you going to do, man? There's not, everything has something that's like it nowadays. I mean, it's impossible. You can try your hardest, but yep, that's life. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so he's seen the trailer. He loved it. Um, we, we showed him the trailer at the days of the dead convention in Chicago last month. Um, and, and, you know, so it was really cool to be able to sit and bullshit with him about the movie and show him the trailer. And we, we recorded a nice little, like 35 minute interview with him about the movie, talking about it between the two of us. And, uh, we'll release that at some point, but, um, I'm just excited. You know, it's, it's, it's just a fun movie. You know, it's, it's, it's so wacky and, and out there and just fucking, I don't know. There's, there's moments in it that are just batshit crazy. And then there's moments over where you're like, wow, I, I really care for these characters. Um, you know, I, I don't want to see bad things happen to them. And, and you really start rooting for these people, um, which is cool because most people see Sid Haig and he's 
you know, killing people and raping. Right, people. right. And and in this movie, he's the lovable father or grandfather or uncle that everybody wishes they had. Um, See, Sid Haig to me will always be Spider Baby and Coffee and Foxy Brown. Sure. It will, will be that era. Like I think most people now just look at him, and it's always Rob Zombie films. Yeah, you know. And and it re it reinvigorated his career for sure. And and I know he's very thankful for that. But I know it gets to him after a while because it's the same shit. Mm-hmm. Again. I can only be so lucky to, you know, I've always said if I can be in my, at his point, he's 77. If I can be even half his age, well, I almost am, um, and, and be going to conventions and have people lining up for hours to get my autograph, you know, I, I would be so fucking thankful. And I know that he is. And and that's what I'm excited about is tapping into that fan base that he has because they are super dedicated. Absolutely. And, and one of the things about him is, too, which which is part of the reason why he's such a huge fan base, he's such a humble individual. Yeah, I mean, he's very opinionated. The, the cool thing about knowing Sid on a personal level is that Sid is a very strong-willed person. His convictions are, are beyond what a lot of people I know nowadays have. And I respect that because, as you know, I'm a very blunt and honest person, and I rub a lot of people the wrong way because people aren't used to people telling them the truth or right. people telling them their opinion. You know, Whether you want to hear it or not, this is how I feel about something or about you. Take it or leave it. And... Sid is like that. And so that's really cool. And I respect the fuck out of him for that. And he's been in this industry for over 50 years. So like when he talks about stuff, you really try and take heed because I believe that 99% of the time he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. He's been there, man. Exactly. Um, I mean, you know, he was making independent movies when independent movies were truly independent movies, you know? Back in the 60s and shit. And so, yeah, one of those things where they took that movie and sold it to a few theaters and hoped that they actually had an audience and they'd make yeah. a buck back on it. Yes. You know, so like like back in the day when when they were doing all the Filipino movies with yep. Greer, it's like, well, it will cost us a million dollars to go to the Philippines and shoot five movies. You guys want to go to the Philippines for a year and shoot five movies? And he's like, well, fuck yeah. And then they went and they did it. And, you know, he's talking, telling us stories about how. There was no bathrooms or anything. You'd be in this little village. And if you got to take a shit, you got to take somebody with you because they got to watch for fucking spiders and snakes and scorpions or whatever the fuck is out in the jungle. And, and, you know, he's like, it it was, it was a weird experience, but it was, it was what made him who he is, you know? So I think, um, what we're going to do here, Tony, is because I, I think you and I could probably go on for a while um, about the subsequent uh, fallout and some of the things that have happened with not only High on the Hog, but also your other movie, The Rake, uh, that we haven't talked about yet, and maybe some of World of Death. Uh, let's let's come back and let's talk again uh, another time, maybe next month or maybe in a couple weeks. Uh, we'll try and schedule another episode and we'll get more into um, kind of what happens when you no longer have control of your movies anymore. Yeah. And uh, what you need to do as filmmakers and maybe give some people some insight into what that is like, because I think we hear a lot of stories about big Hollywood movies that get taken away from people, but we don't really get that insider view from, from us, an indie guy that has that experience. So I'd love to sit and, and get more in depth into that, but uh, I know you got to get your pew pews on. So I don't want to prohibit you from getting that pew pew action going on. So you said that your uh, high on the hog is finally going to be coming out. Uh, what do you foresee um, for the masses? When are they going to finally be able to see this thing? Honestly, I, I couldn't tell you because we have to sell it. You know, once, once you get it, uh, once you get it finished, then you have to find a sales agent and a distributor. And so, you know, even though you're, you're going to sit here and say, okay, well, this is, you know, this is going to be done by March 1st, you know, and hopefully premiering at uh, South by Southwest, you know, at the same time you have, um, you have to think about then, okay, well, if we're going to sell it, how, how long is it going to take to sell and how long is it going to take to, for the, the distributor to get it out there? To right. The world? Which could be years. Uh, 
I, I mean, realistically, maybe 2018, but I, I'm really trying to not look at it like that because I, I just, I need this movie to get out there. We shot it. <laughs> Almost, you know, we shot it four right, years ago. Right, so. this will be a long fucking road, man. I've heard horror stories about movies just getting shelled for so long. Well, the High and the Hog will never get shelled because we have control over it, and Kevin will never allow for High and the Hog to just disappear. And I know that for a fact, which makes me happy. That's good. Um, yeah, the, the the you know, it's it's a different story, obviously, with the rake, and we'll we'll get into that a little bit. I'm not going to go too crazy, but you know, we'll. We'll talk about that the next time. All right, man. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, we'll definitely come back to this hopefully soon and, and talk about that other stuff. But for right now, would you like to tell my listeners where they can find some of your movies or where they can find you if they want to get a hold of you and follow you on the Internet? Well, I mean, you can go to, uh, you can find Scotchworthy Productions on Facebook. Um, my website is supposed to be under construction right now, but I don't believe it is. Um, so you can go to scotchworthy.com. I'm on Twitter at 200 Proof Tear, um, or you can search Scotchworthy, and I'm sure that would pop up. I'm also on Instagram as Scotchworthy. So I'm, I'm pretty much everywhere. Um, you can you can watch my short film the muck which went to south by southwest and some of the other big festivals um on uh, vimeo or it's in episode 34 of world of death um and we'll talk more about world of death the next time too because i definitely like to talk about that and promote that a little bit absolutely i you know what we could have probably went on another hour or two and i bet you we will <laughs> at some point so um i want to thank you for coming on tony and uh i'll talk to you soon bud yeah thanks derek Appreciate all right Find Astro Radio Z on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, YouTube, and anywhere that podcasts are found. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and email us questions, concerns, or just general chatter at astroradiozpodcast at gmail.com. Coming from me, Derek Carey, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.